Hello, shalom, and welcome to the history of Judaism, the history and story of the Jews, told by me, Yossi Silverman, licensed tour guide, uh, Jewish educator, Israel studies teacher, and uh, all-round wonderful guy. Um, you might have been asking, why have we been offline for so long? Uh, well, I have amazing news, life-shattering news for me, really amazing stuff that I'm really happy about, which I'll tell you at the end of the podcast. But to to focus on this podcast's uh, title, which is The Hidden Story of the Jews in Persia. We're talking about the transition of the Jewry from Babylonian Jewry to Persians Jewry, looking at texts and archaeology and all that kind of fun jazz. So, last time we were dealing with the history of the Jews in Babylon, uh, what changed between the, uh, the Jews living in, in uh, Judah to living in Babylon, how their status changed, how they became uh, important people in Babylon, and also uh, the um, story of Ezekiel. This time we're going to be dealing with the transition to the Jews who are now living in Persia, or rather, shall I say, transitioning to uh, really being under Persian sovereignty. Most of the time they didn't actually move, they just the sovereignty has changed. We're going to be dealing with three different stories here. We're going to be dealing with the story of Cyrus, the story of Daniel, and the story of uh, the book of Esther. So three different things here. And, and by the way, just a quick disclaimer, it doesn't initially look historical. Believe me, it's going to look pretty darn historical. At least we're going to have suspicions of history by the end of this podcast. Firstly, we're going to be dealing with Daniel. Now, Daniel is a very, very strange book. Always when I hear people using proofs for things from the book of Daniel. Look, I have a YouTube which uh, discusses um, the uh, Jewish uh, non-belief, Jewish mainstream non-belief in Jesus. Uh, nine times out of ten, somebody really wants to come along and stump me. They'll go and throw something at me and Daniel. And I'll always be like a little bit shocked because, number one, it really surprises me that people seem to be very easy with Daniel. It's not even written in Hebrew. It's written in, not even written in like normal Aramaic. It's written in like very strange, uh, I assume, First Temple Aramaic or script Jewish biblical scriptural Aramaic. It, it's not exactly straightforward. Also, Daniel, yeah, he he doesn't really speak in a kind of straightforward way. Daniel, well known for speaking in metaphors. Daniel, also well known for having really kind of really weird and uh, what might sound to us as being absurd sounding visions. Daniel isn't like your typical like history book. Daniel isn't doesn't write things in a straightforward way. Okay, the, the big issue with Daniel is an issue of chronology and let me make this clear because it's an issue which underpins the rest of the podcast. Names. Names in Daniel and names in also the book of Esther. Very, very, very significant. Um, both uh, in, in very in confusing. Very, very confusing. So the Daniel... Initially, the way Daniel's described actually fits in with our knowledge of history coming from uh, last podcast. Listen to the last podcast if you really want to know more about that. But just to summarise, the position of Jews in the Babylonian Empire, they kind of do, some of them do get into a kind of like administration class 
tax collectors, courtiers, that kind of thing. And Daniel becomes like a kind of court prophet or court wise man or courtier, something like that. Uh, and here's the main issue. Uh, the king at the time is a king described as being uh, Belshazzar. Uh, this is a slight bit of a problem, uh, and Belshazzar, what's more, it get the story team seems to be getting it confused, because the story seems to call uh, Belshazzar, and be making the kind of idea that Belshazzar is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, now, there was a crown prince called Belshazzar, uh, the last, amongst the last kings of the Babylonians, uh, he wasn't king, he was crown prince. I think we can chalk that up as being okay. And his father, though, is not Nebuchadnezzar. The father is a guy called Nabonidus. And, and that could be seen as a serious, serious issue with the text. Though, actually, I'm going to prove less so. So we've got no problem, actually, with Belshazzar himself. Let me make this clear. Having a character in the book of Daniel called Belshazzar, or I'm going to try and mess up the cuneiform here, Belshazzar uh, Usuru, which would have been his uh, proper Aramaic name, uh, or Akkadian name, not sure which there. That, that's okay. That's not a problem. Uh, it's it's the whole father, son of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, not Nabonidus. That, that would be the problem. Now, don't get me wrong, Belshazzar is related to Nebuchadnezzar. It's just missing a few steps here. And this is based, of course, on, on the Babylonian Chronicles, or as we know them, big lumps of clay with cuneiform written on them, which seem to have a whole list of different names in between Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. In between, you've got Nebuchadnezzar's son, uh, who was Amal Marduk, who then is overthrown in the palace coup by Nergalisar. Pay attention to palace coups. We're going to be focusing on those quite a bit. And his son, Nergalisar's son, Labashi Marduk, he's taken over in another coup by Nabonidus. And then Nabonidus's son is this guy, Belshazzar. So that's it, or Belshazzar, as the Bible calls him. By the way, I really don't have a problem with uh, Belshazzar not actually being a king, just being like the prince regent, like, come on, kingy king person, or something like that. And also, what are we going to hear later on in the context of the, of the text itself makes complete sense. It's fine for him not to be like official king, just kind of under king there. That's not the problem here. However, the text takes all of these historical nuances and just turns it into one simple word in Aramaic, which I do understand, I understand a bit of Aramaic, uh, the word avuch. It says that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, avuch, is like the father of Belshazzar. That's what avuch means, fa father of. There was a version of the, t the translation in English which uh, it's the, the the art scroll version, which it's not bad. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be hating on the art scroll version of the translation, but it kind of sticks grand in the, in the brackets in front of the word father, which in an attempt to solve this problem. Uh, so newsflash, that doesn't solve the problem one little bit, uh, and he's not his grandfather either, and uh, also like kind of 
you've not really helped us there. You've just now given us another wrongful impression. That's all. And it's not like kind of there's a hidden, as far as I understand, there's no like hidden other meaning of the word avuch. It means father. It doesn't mean grandfather. So that one just chalk that up to not being correct. So uh, we can go through the solutions to this, obviously, with no particular... Uh, objective agenda from me the first opinion which I'll call the rubbish one that I don't like very much me being all that objective about it is saying the word father is figurative and it kind of means you know antecedent which I don't like I don't like that boo boo to that one doesn't make sense don't like it Uh, another another approach is to say okay so maybe our idea of the names are a bit off. Does the story, is the story something that's retold in other texts? Have we got something that's going on, a similar kind of story there, a mirroring story? And actually, this 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 time, you're actually onto something here, because there is a very similar story, just with the, the names are different. Uh, so in the cuneiform texts, there's the story of Nabonidus. Uh, what happens to Nabonidus? So, palace coup, rules Persia for a bit, and then he has some kind of like religious epiphany, uh, and is described as going like a bit funny and bit off off his rocker a bit, and going out into the desert to commune with like some kind of special god. Um, and this this actually is mirrored in the text. It says, instead of saying Nabonidus, it says Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, so you can hear the similarity in the text when the text says uh, in the book of Daniel, and this is me quoting directly, God who gave majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Now, because God gave him majesty, all the peoples and nations around him used to tremble before him. And whoever he wanted to kill, he would kill. And whoever he wanted to keep alive, he would keep alive. And whoever he wanted to raise up, he would raise up. And whoever he wanted to put down, he would put down. And then his heart grew proud and his royal spirit seemed to swell. And so he was deposed from his royal throne. And honour was taken from him. And he was driven from mankind. And his heart was made like his beasts, and his dwelling was with wild asses. And they fed him grass like oxen, and his body was washed with the dew of heaven until he recognised the one true God of all mankind. So what have we got here? We've got a king with an end name, the wrong end name, who leaves the throne, becomes very proud, leaves the throne heads out uh, into a place where the dew might wash him with heaven. We could call that the wilderness. Uh, and he, he lives as a kind of wilderness guy, like, you know, like an ox, eating uh, fresh herbs and whatever, and uh, living uh, out in the elements. And he recognised the one Jewish God. That's the story of Nabonidus there. Now, that's not the story of Nebuchadnezzar, but interesting that yeah, the actual uh, some of the story is actually told in the text itself. It's just the name is a bit skew with. But as we're going to understand, as I go through the the actual last story, we've taken just a clip here. I'm going to go through the last story. Names very important, though they aren't what they seem.
So we're now actually going to go back through the story in which this quotation appears, because the story is possibly one of the weirdest, darkest, and most disturbing stories in in the Jewish Bible. Uh, and I'd also like to contend there is clearly a lot of hidden messages with this story, and not even not even no no less really with the names and the naming in the story. So the story goes like this. Belshazzar the king, so he has a big feast and he brings all of his uh, courtiers to this feast on all of this, uh, his wise men to the feast, and they're really enjoying themselves at the feast. And one thing that the text actually brings out that they are using in the feast, the vessels taken from the destroyed first temple. They are making merry and having a, a debauched party with, with the vessels of holiness. The text specifically says, in a kind of very enigmatic way, the golden vessels which his father, we've discussed that already, Nebuchadnezzar, stole from the temple. At the height of the debauchery, a very strange thing happens. A disembodied hand appears out of nowhere. In a similar manner to uh, Thing from the Adams Family in my mind. So this, di this disembodied hand appears and writes words on the wall. And nobody can make out the words. It's very disturbing. Suddenly graffiti appears on the wall and nobody can make it out. So they call out all the wizards and sorcerers and interpreters of dreams. And, uh, and that guy, David Copperfield, who does the magic but isn't from Dickens. No, they don't call him, but that would be cool. That's probably, well, Penn and Teller or somebody like that to explain what are these funny words. And nobody can explain these funny words. So in a way, very similar to the whole story with Joseph, they call out Daniel to come and explain the words. Now... The words happen to be in Aramaic, which is kind of strange, what with this being an Aramaic-speaking culture, but we'll just overlook that one. And uh, Daniel can read the words. So he reads out the words, and the words are Mene, Mene, Tekel, Ufarshin. Uh, and that, that literally means mene means like a full portion. Um, so two menes, two full portions. Tekel is kind of another another kind of weight, rather like the word in, in Hebrew, shekel. By the way, in Aramaic and Hebrew, the uh, sh sound and the t sound can be swapped. So shekel, a weight. Uh, ufarshin is some kind of division. Uh, uh, it sounds a little bit like the word Persians, by the way. Parsim and Farshim are very, very similar. Um, so what th what does that mean? So then Daniel explains, well, Mene, that means you've been counted. That's a portion, you've been apportioned, you've been counted, you've been counted twice. Uh, tekel, you've been weighed. You've been counted and weighed, you've been assessed. Ufarshim, and you've been found wanting. And what it literally, what it figuratively means... Not literally. It literally means it's been counted twice and found wanting. Even figuratively, it means uh, 
it, you will be take your empire will be taken from you by and divided amongst the Medes and Persians. And everyone's kind of everybody's very shocked. Okay, funny thing here. What do you think is the response of everybody at the party? Well, everybody at the party, instead of going, oh my goodness, what do we do? They say, okay, now we will give Daniel a big reward. Now, what do you think his reward is? It's kind of weird. His reward is to be dressed in the royal purple colours and be given a third of the kingdom. Yeah, just you explain your dream. Oh, here we go. Uh, royal purple colours, third of the kingdom, bit like the story of Joseph. Uh, that, that's really very strange reaction. Another thing. How do they call Daniel's name in the book of Daniel? In this part of the book. Most of it's Daniel, you're right. Uh, but in this part, he has a very special name. In this part of the book of Daniel, he's not called Daniel. He's called Belshazzar. Not Belshazzar. That's the name of the, of the uh, prince regent, the kingy person. He is called Belshazzar. That is really weird. Can I just point out how, how jolly weird that is? Because it, it is like saying, you know, the advisor of the king, king, well, you got at the moment, you're a queen called Elizabeth. So we'll say the um, uh, advisor of the queen would be Elizabeth. Not Elizabeth. No, no, Elizabeth. And she'll be given the third of the rule of the kingdom. So part, most of the kingdom will be ruled by Elizabeth, but the rest will be ruled by Elizabeth. Uh, that, that's, yeah, that, you're saying that sounds really fishy. Then what happens next is even fishier. That very night, not like a little bit later, that very night the Medes and Persians invade and take over. And Daniel still stays there and gets a, a third of the kingdom. Sorry, not Daniel, Belshazzar. So, you know, if I was to tell you that, that tomorrow, uh, Queen Elizabeth II, may she live, long live the Queen, may she be live for many years, this is just an example. I'm not, not suggesting treason here. Please do not call MI6. I've no desire to get in any trouble whatsoever. But if you were to say that tomorrow, Elizabeth will suddenly have a nation conquered by somebody else, and her ad loyal advisor, Elizabeth, will take over a third of the kingdom. And funnily enough, Elizabeth predicted this happening too. You'd say, okay, Elizabeth, you're, you're a funny person there. Uh, Elizabeth was in on it. So same thing here. <laughs> this is a palace coup. This is the... Um, uh, which is not unlikely. That kind of thing happens in, in this period of history. That, uh, yes, there are... According to the the uh, chronicles, th this is mentioned, but it could be some of the finer details. A lot of these things were decided by palace coups, and it is very strange that you have kind of um, Daniel taking the king's clothes, taking the royal purple, becoming uh, partly a king himself, or prince regent. It, it's very strange, and Daniel even changes his name in a kind of creepy stalkerish way to the king's name so that you know that's the first part of us as obviously they're hidden if you don't think there's hidden messages in the book of daniel um i don't know what you're reading it's the book of daniel it's the hidden message book 
So I would say, and it doesn't say explicitly in the book, but I would say you're probably pretty much right in saying Daniel's in on it, right? And this also, if we take a step back and look at the general picture here, we're talking about Jews having genuine power in the Babylonian kingdom, and then again, genuine kind of serious political power in the Persian kingdom too. That's a really big theme here. So where we're up to is after this crazy drunken story, Darius the Mede takes over the Babylonian Empire and it becomes the Persian or Medan Persian Empire or Achmenid Persian Empire. So that's the end of the, end of the Babylonian Empire. Now you're going to thought you're going to have lots of fun learning about Babylonian Empire. Sorry, it's not very long this Neo-Babylonian Empire bit. The uh, the the Persian Empire, yeah, that that goes on for a bit, but no, no. Babylonian Empire, blink and you miss it. So we've got the position of the Jews, but also to just understand the next narratives coming later. Names, names are very important. Names aren't what they seem. So if you need a breather from this, if you feel you need something that's like a little bit more kind of straight, a little bit less kind of kooky nuts, a little bit less kind of like you've taken some kind of something illegal, uh, the next bit's going to be more, more straightforward, a little bit more historical. So we're dealing with an actual uh, more historical narrative uh, kind of like con um, that's leaked, that's uh, been reported uh, through the lenses of the Bible. So the next person we're dealing with is Cyrus, and that's easier because Cyrus, Cyrus is a person. We don't have a problem with the existence or non-existence of Cyrus. We have other texts talking about Cyrus. So here's the thing. In the book of Ezra, there is a, an edict which Cyrus makes, a royal decree which Cyrus makes, which we do actually have very clear uh, mirroring narratives. It goes like this. And in the first year of Koresh, that's the Hebrew name for Cyrus, translating from the Hebrew here, the king of Persia, he became, on the uh, conclusion of Jeremiah's prophecy, the city in which Cyrus ruled from the king of Persia, there came out a voice meaning an edict in all of his kingdom. And there was also a written order not just a voice, not just a, a uh, some kind of messengers telling, saying the order to people, but actually something written down. And this uh, written decree said, thus, and this is what the order said, thus said Cyrus the king of Persia, all the kingdom and the land which God has given me, the God of heaven, he has given me to rule on it and to build on it, and he has allowed for me to build a house which is in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. If any of you from any of the nations will go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build a house to God, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem, and anybody who's left who's not going to Jerusalem should give gifts of silver and gifts of gold and any other pro produce and projects that are needed, and cows, to the they should give this to the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So what this edict actually means, it means that, that it's telling people to build a, a temple in Jerusalem. And not only that, if they are not going to themselves build the temple in Jerusalem, they have to pay a tax, they have to pay monies towards this temple in Jerusalem, both for sacrifices and both for the actual physical needs of the building, both silver and gold. So here's the thing, we have actually have found in archaeology edicts from Cyrus and edicts from Cyrus to do with the rebuilding of, temple, of temples. That is actually a thing. That is actually a mirroring narrative. 
and these uh, this cylinder that was found actually gave talks about giving rights of uh, the uh, conquered nations of the Babylonian Empire who've now now come into the the regime of the Persian Empire giving them rights to build uh, temples so the reason I'm mentioning it not just because it's an important thing to for us to know for our whole discussion of the history and story of the Jews because this is the talking about the return of the Jews to the land of of Yahud of to Judea and this is really an important setup for the next few podcasts it also gives us the background to the next story and the background to the next story really is showing that the um things have changed uh the minority peoples of the Persian empire have uh, actually gained better status uh as kind of almost citizen subjects or not really citizens uh, powerful subjects of the uh, empire which uh, clearly uh, Cyrus relies on them being happy and content we're no longer dealing with a, a serious a, um, a case of oppression rather kind of partnership in power and power is important for the next story which is going to be the story of Esther quick apology i was intending to do this podcast for the feast of esther for purim which is now a quite a quite a few months gone now um, there was technical issues and also what i'm going to talk about at the end of the podcast now i know i'm going to get into a whole lot of criticism for even even mentioning the words book of esther in a history podcast and most people will tell you yeah you know there are serious historical issues with the book of esther i'm going to go into them as well but i've got news for you book of esther if you take it in context of the book of Daniel, uh, and if you, especially with the, the terms of names, it, it's written in code. It's uh, got a clear subtext in the book of, of, of Esther. Uh, and uh, listen here, and you'll hear certainly that it's not a straightforward story one little bit. So book of Esther features three main characters. There's uh, Esther, uh, a maiden, who we're going to discuss in a second, her well uncle for better want of a better word and uh, uh the king of uh, the persian empire at that time whatever time that is ahasuerus and people will then tell you that there was never such king as ahasuerus there's a, a funny name which never really existed in any of the persian chronicles whatsoever possibly it sounds like a king xerxes but that's completely the wrong period of history for that to make any sense whatsoever it could be also Ataxerxes, but again, that would not make sense and doesn't really come at the chronologically right time for at least what happens in the book of uh, Esther. And there are certain um, historical underpinnings in the book of Esther. It's, that's if you think that the names are really what the names are, which, as we just said in the book of Daniel, they're not. The, the names uh, have meanings beyond uh historical characters so yeah you can have uh you can ha call the king as you wearers just like we can call daniel belt are and it really means something else i mean the story itself the wording itself of the story assumes you don't actually know how ahasuerus is who ahashverosh as he's called in the story is anyway 
And the first words, we can start the story now. The first words of the story start with, it was in the days of King Ahasuerus, he was Ahasuerus, who ruled from in from Hodu, from India, until a place called Kush. Uh, this is a very strange way to start a text. There really isn't any other places where they start a text like this. The closest is... Um, a place in Genesis where it says that it was in the days of Amaraphel. And in a few other places too, it was in the days of King X. But they don't again have to repeat the name, his name again and then tell you where he ruled. Because you're like, oh, okay, so we now know who he is. This text needs to explain where he ruled and who he is. That doesn't happen anywhere else. It's as if it's saying it was in the days of King Ahasuerus and then there's a plot implied that you then respond as the reader, who's that then? Oh, you know, Ahasuerus who, who ruled from India and to Kush. And you're like, oh, fine then. So right off there in the beginning, it assumes you don't know who this king is and the text needs to explain it. So the two major protagonists, well, the first one uh, is, is Mordechai, uh, well, the, the second one is Esther. Mordechai and Esther, really not, not very Jewish names, not at all. Uh, Mordechai, that is uh, a, uh, comes from the name Marduk, Marduk Enlil, the king god in Mesopotamia, like the chief of the gods, kind of like almost a Thor-like Thor -like figure in the god, Odin-like figure of the gods of Mesopotamia. Esther, that is Ishtar, that's the, the, the fertility god. Uh, again in, in Mesopotamia that is not not you know why not certainly not the names of a good Jewish boy and girl really and uh, it's like having your your heroes being I don't know uh, Peter and Mary uh, <laughs> and they're the Jewish you know Ram the monkey god or something it, it it's very strange for some reason we only get Esther's real name, which is Hadassah. We don't get Mordechai's real name. Uh, don't have any answers for that one. Just a bit weird. I'm sure he has a hidden meaning. Don't know. It's a bit weird. Uh, and I'm going to claim it's a little bit like the story of Daniel. And in fact, I think it mirrors Daniel because uh, by the end of the story, Mordechai and Esther have actually taken over half of the kingdom, not a third of the kingdom. They've done a little bit better than Daniel. Okay, the villain in the story the villain in the story is a guy called Haman or Haman intensely weird name yeah really really bizarre name Haman in Aramaic means there's a few possibilities the ha part of the name is the definite article uh, or it could be the definite article it also could just be a kind of upside down question mark at the beginning of a word like you have in Spanish and uh, man means uh, a thing or some guy. So either the protagonist's name, well, it could be just his name was really Haman, or it means like uh, some uh, a thing, the thing, or some guy, or thing. If we're saying ha is the uh, the ha sound of uh, a, a question being asked. So that that is a very strange name. You're having uh, Esther and Mordechai, um, save the Jewish nation from uh, something, some guy. So we've got some guy, but he's supposed to be not just some guy, he's uh, some guy, the son of a guy called Hamadatta, 
who is what's known as an, an Agagite. Not just a, a Malachite, who are a tribe who were all wiped out. So don't ask me how he's still there if all the tribe was supposed to be wiped out in the, the time of uh, King Saul. But he, he is uh, he is not just that, but an Agagite, which means from the royal family of the Amalekites. Now, there's not supposed to be a royal family of the Amalekites. What with uh, uh, Samuel, uh, the prophet, killing Agag. That's where the name Agagite comes from. Killing Agag. Agag and uh, so he couldn't have any progeny. But there's a story, a kind of rabbinic explanation story, which says that in one night, uh, uh, Agag managed to have multiple progeny uh, somehow. It's a little bit strange, you might agree. So at the start of the story, just to tie it closer to the book of Daniel, the, king's, the story starts with... Uh, Ahasuerus, whoever that is, having a big party with golden vessels. So, okay, where where do we think these golden vessels are from? What where do we have golden vessels before? That's right, story of Daniel, story of Daniel and the writing on the wall. We had the golden vessels, and in fact, the suggestion for uh, the tradition when you get to this part of uh, reading the book of Esther on the feast of Esther is actually you change the tune that you're of your reading it these, these are actually all these stories are sung to tunes in Jewish tradition uh, so you change your tune from a happy tune to the tune of, uh, that you sing the book of Lamentations which as you might understand is a very sad story to do with the destruction of the temple implying that these golden vessels were stolen from the temple just like in the book of Daniel. And then uh, Ahasuerus calls out his wife Vashti to come and dance for him. She doesn't want to, so she's sent away. Some people say that's uh, figuratively she's killed. Funnily enough, there's actually an idea that no, she's just sent away. Uh, and that's the kind of beginning first chapter of the story. Now, in current Judaism, there's kind of a tradition to have a cutesy little children's uh, Purim plays, a la kind of kind of similar anthropological phenomenon to nativity plays, I should imagine. And most of it is like kind of very cute and very nice, but very kind of sanitized. So, in the cute children's plays, what happens next is that Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus feels all lonely. So, Ahasuerus. Um, Hasuerus has a, a beauty contest to find a new queen. Ah, isn't that kind of nice and cutesy and sad and whatever? Yeah, that is far from what happens. What happens next is that uh, Hasuerus feels the need for a queen, but not just that, and the thing that all important Middle Eastern. Uh, a royalty had at some points at various different points in history and also at this point in history a harem he wants to have a harem a little place where women he takes women who he kidnaps to live in his palace and serve him in sexual manners uh, so he goes out on some kind of weird and rather disgusting kind of foray into his empire to go and get women for his harem and specifically also to get his special woman who will be his uh, 
his his uh, queen, uh, probably more accurate to call it head concubine or something like that. Essentially, these are ladies that are kidnapped. So when when it says when you have in the cutesy plays that Esther uh, auditions to be the queen of uh, Persia, no, kidnapped, kidnapped by uh, or given to slavery by her own uncle uh, to uh, the uh, harem of uh, the king Ahasuerus. How jolly and fun! Look, don't go changing your little uh, kindergarten play for the kids just right now. If you want to have them doing an entertaining X Factor thing, then where they all audition to be the Queen of Persia, fair enough. But that's not actually what happens. What happens is Mordechai gives away uh, his, I suppose, cousin, it's not very clear on that, uh, away to um, the harem of... uh, has you wear us so she become, can become a sex slave. Uh, on an educational note, I think actually it is very sad in our world that A, we haven't got over this concept of women being taken away uh, as slaves and used for sex slavery. Uh, and I think it's also a shame that we like to cover this over with a cutesy, sanitised speech. It's not cute. It's not fun. It's not sanitized, and it really, uh, it, it's it kind of reinforces, unfortunately, the messages of today's world. So I'm going to say, well, like it is. So the very fact that uh, Esther gets taken away to the palace of King Ahasuerus is not not a wonderful thing. It's, uh, I would suggest, a really quite sad thing. A a Jewish girl becomes uh, the slave uh, of the Persian king. Now, why do I say that her uncle gives her over to this sex trafficking? Well, firstly, it's not clear it is her uncle. There are certain weird things about the text where, uh, well, firstly, uh, Mordechai is described as, could be described as her uncle. The word is used is Dod or uh, do, uh, Dodor, her uncle. But Dod can also be her lover, her beloved. So please be aware of that. Uh, and it also says that he takes um, he takes her, meaning Mordechai had already taken her uh, to be, it says, a bat uh, daughter. There's some say it, that, that really that this the, we want that's one letter away from by it, meaning house, meaning for a household to be his wife, uh, or for a you know it it it's not clear cut that it it is uh, he is a. a the legal guardian of her and even if he is uh there's nothing necessarily in the way of both being a legal guardian and then her he marry her marrying her but that doesn't happen he gives her away uh and uh, it it is described as be them being uh related uh and being uh a, a niece and a uh and a uncle but again like the text isn't necessarily strict with these things so uh my suggestion is where it's using dodd their uh uncle it could be using the word lover they could have been engaged but then at the last minute the decision was that she was to go to the house of uh the king of the the emperor of the of persia and to live in the harem which you might admit is a bit messed up then the main villain, this guy, Haman, a guy or guy, um, Haman decides that he's going to uh, 
he doesn't like the Jews and that he's going to have them all killed. So uh, he, at this point, Haman is a kind of senior court advisor at the court of uh, Ahasuerus. And he uh, just, you know, approaches the king, says, I want to kill the Jews. Here's some money, decides a date, throws some lots, decides a date. And uh, the the king says, OK, then. Firstly, he doesn't really know who the Jews are. He has to have it explained to him. Uh, Explained to him as being a, a nation who is spread about and divided amongst all the other nations in his empire. And uh, that um, the be- the reason given to kill them is because he's getting paid. Now that sounds hardly likely that a he doesn't know who the Jews are, especially considering we just said that Daniel himself was a a court prophet, uh, and also that he just go oh, okay then loyal loyal subjects have them all killed. I get money. Uh, assumingly, he had m- enough money anyway. Is the emperor? Uh, fine, go uh, go ahead. Let's go on and do it. It's a very very strange story. What actually is happening there? Then, in addition to this, at some point, there's this another story going on. How these two blokes called Big Tan and Teresh decide they're going to kill the king, but they get caught by Mordechai. Then uh, Mordechai hears about the um, uh, plan of the. Uh, of, of, of the king to kill all the Jews and he, he tells uh, Esther to go do something about it. Uh, by the way, the bit which people gloss over is Esther doesn't want to do anything and uh, Mordecai has to go and like threaten her that if she doesn't do it, somebody else will, will do it and she'll just disappear from the history books and that seems to be something which encourages her to go and, uh, and intercede on behalf of her fellow Jews. It is strange. She's supposed to be the big heroine of the story, and she she needs to be kind of forced into it. And she seems to be forced into a lot, doesn't she? Really, that's that kind of a scene is closed off. And then the king has a disturbing night. One night, he's tossing and turning, he's trying to remember what's disturbing him. And then he asks for his own book of chronicles to be read out to him, and he finds out that there was this guy called Mordechai who spotted this uh, plot between Big Tan and Teres to kill him, and nothing ever happened to Mordechai. So he then calls Haman in to come and explain maybe what he should do about the whole Mordechai saving him situation. Also, it skips the king's notice that Mordechai is in fact a Jew. This, of course, is nobody finds strange at all. Uh, what is Mordechai's nickname? Mordechai the Jew. So the king doesn't know that Mordechai the Jew is in fact a Jew, or he does and kind of forgets that he's going to go and kill all the Jews, so he really shouldn't be getting all excited about a Jew who saved his life. And he doesn't see this as being a confusing, difficult thing and an issue there. He's still going to go kill all the Jews, but he wants to know what can he do for this one Jew who saved his life. Now, that's not strange at all. So then he calls uh, Haman, this guy in, to come and help. And he explains the situation to Haman without saying who he's talking about, saying there was a guy who he very much likes and he wants to honour. Haman thinks it hits him. So Haman says, dress the guy who you like so much. Uh, he doesn't know that he likes him so much he's saved his life. He's, Haman thinks it's him. Dress him in royal blue, the royal clothes. Only the royals wear this special kind of blue. Uh, and put him on your horse and parade him round the city saying, this is the man who the king likes to honour. This is also very strange because colour's been an issue here before. 
what colour is uh, Daniel is clothed in royal purple in the story with Daniel? So that's uh, another place where the story mirrors. So Mordechai is paraded through the town. Haman gets very upset. Uh, and then previous to this, I missed out a teeny bit. doesn't matter so much. That it's not in 100% order. Previous to this, Esther before the king has this dream, approaches the king and asks for a favour and she hums and haws and has to go through the whole palace protocol about how you approach the king and finally she approaches the king and asks the king for the um, uh, honour of joining her in a banquet, Her, him and his uh, advisor Haman. Uh, so he agrees to go to going to a banquet. Now, you'd expect during this, this is the banquet where she spills the beans. No, this is the banquet where she invites the king and Haman to another banquet. Because that, that makes sense. Invites the king and Haman to another banquet. At the other banquet, she then spills the beans and says that Haman is trying to kill her and her people. And the king then gets really angry and uh, says that um, Haman should, uh, should be put to death. But how's he going to do it? You know, he's only the king of Persia with all these lots of different methods of execution at his use. He's no idea how he's going to kill um, Haman. Does anybody know how to kill Haman? Makes no sense either. So then a guy whose name is Harvona points out that Haman previously built a very, very, an obscenely large tree or gallows, a bit of wood, to hang uh, Mordechai from because he doesn't like Mordechai because Mordechai is a Jew and refuses to bow down to him. So he goes, aha, there's a big gallows in Haman's garden and the king says, oh, okay, we'll hang Haman and, of course, all of Haman's ten sons. Yeah, very fishy. It's not a straightforward book. And then, then there's the bit that people miss out. People are like, and then it's a happy day and we have a feast commemorating this every year. Well, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Doesn't finish there. Then, after this, the king, who's clearly, you know, struggling to make his name as he's just started ruling, he gives half of his kingdom to Mordechai and Esther. Mordechai and Esther just go from being the underdogs, from being trying to get their ways into the king's good graces, to being the rulers of half the kingdom. Again, clear parallel to Daniel. Daniel rules a third of the kingdom. Mordechai and Esther, they rule half of the kingdom. And then they massacre thousands and thousands. I believe it's more than 75,000 people are then the, all the enemies of the Jews, the followers of Haman. And at this point, you thought Haman was acting in a bubble. No, it's not. There's 75,000 people that Mordechai and Esther massacre uh, have killed. Seemingly, they have to do this. Part of the rationale is because there was a decree of the king and a de uh, you cannot revoke the decree of a king. That, so they have to commit some kind of violent act because a violent act was requested that they had to make an amendment instead of killing all the Jews, massacre 75,000 people. In addition to this weirdness, it then says, and of course, this is all of this is written in the uh, chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia. 
uh yeah no nobody's found that chronicle that's really weird like there's nowhere where we know this is happening uh and again if we were to know when it was happening we wouldn't know when because we don't know haven't identified which king Hazuerus is anyway So the first thing to mention is this isn't a straightforward story. There's lots of bizarre things that don't seemingly have a normal reason for why it should be happening. There is also to notice about the text, most people point out the name of God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. Why? People say oh, he's hidden, he's hidden amongst the scenery. I don't know why the name of God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. It might be telling you that there's plenty hiding in the book of Esther. There's definite parallelisms between the book of Esther and the book of Daniel. Daniel um, is a courtier. Mordechai kind of becomes a courtier. Daniel has these kind of issues with his name. He takes on a Persian name. Mordechai and Esther have Persian names. Also, uh, Bel, the Bel part of uh of uh, Daniel's name, Belshazzar, that is also the name of, of a Mesopotamian deity. The uh, other parallelisms, Mordechai and Esther take uh, half of the Persian kingdom. Daniel takes a third of the Persian kingdom. They both seem to be uh, engaged in maybe some kind of regime change. There is a lot, I'd say, of definite connection between the story of Mordechai and Esther and the story of Daniel. Possibly, maybe they're, they're, they're interconnected stories. Maybe they're, they're kind of uh, historical themes that repeated themselves, but there's definitely something going on there. Even the clothing in, in Daniel becomes the same. Daniel is clothed in royal purple and Mordechai and Esther are clothed yeah, well, Mordechai is clothed in, in royal blue. By the way, the chemical that makes blue, uh, a certain chemical which comes from, uh, I believe, a kind of sea snail, starts off as purple. So there's actually a connection even there. I think it, it turns blue, if I'm not mistaken. It either turns blue because of exposure to ammonia or sunlight or a mixture of the two. I forget which. You can you can check it out. It's a, a thing known as the, 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 the Murex snail. One suggestion also about the Book of Esther is that it happened after the Book of Ezra which is shocking what because in the book of, of of Ezra that's when they build a temple meaning Mordechai and Esther why aren't they with this temple why aren't they at this temple why are they uh, making movements in the uh, the Persian court instead of living in Judah and that's a serious issue and there obviously I'd say there's because there's a hidden message in there this is a a, a book written in a certain kind of code but what's the meaning of the code i don't know i don't actually know what the meaning of the code is but i can analyze the themes in this and the themes in this are are very clear to me the themes in this are that jews are becoming a power in the persian kingdom and this is uh juxtaposed against also jews being able to return to judah 
but there's a kind of split between those who move to Judah and those people who stay. And if you're going to stay in the Persian Empire, yes, life is going to be better with you and you're going to have a lot more power. But with power comes a great deal of danger. Because when you put yourself in a position of power, you can become the scapegoat. Also, even just by living amongst those peoples, you become a people, as we said in the book of Esther, spread out and uh, split up amongst the nations. Both split up in terms of you all live in different places, split up in the nations can split you up. The nations can uh, assign you different categories, like the category of scapegoat. Being in power is in itself a dangerous thing. That, I think, is the kind of dark shadow which is cast by the book of Daniel and the book of Esther. As we said, the name of God is not mentioned once in the book of Esther. That is because I would suggest the book of Esther is not about God. It is about the evolution of the Jewish people and is an evolution of a people who become a people spread out and separate amongst the nations. And that is what we are going to be carrying on discussing, a people spread out and separate amongst the nations, both the people uh, separate in terms of uh, separate in the um, grand scheme of the world, but also separated between uh, Judah and uh, the diaspora. And that's what we're going to be starting to look at next time, is the Jews returning to Judah. So, you have been listening to the history of Judaism. Uh, you may have been asking, you want to know the reason why I have not produced anything for a long time. Very simply, before this podcast came out, quite a significant time before I was without work. Now I have work. Uh, to my great happiness, I got my dream job of working as a Jewish studies and land of Israel teacher in a high school uh, uh, program in Israel for Americans, for English speakers. I am going to intend to be producing more podcasts and more of my videos, but it's going to take a bit more time because obviously I'm going to focus a lot on my uh, uh, day job. Um, that doesn't mean to say that this is all free for me. Uh, if you wish to contribute to the podcast, please feel free to throw a tip my way, throw a tip into the uh, co-fi.com slash scoutisrael account or the patreon.com slash scoutisrael. Uh, you can also follow me on Facebook. You can uh, scout Israel on Facebook. You can follow me as Yossi Tour Guide on Instagram. You can follow me as... Um, Wanderer Learner on Twitter. You can look at my website, scoutisrael.com. Uh, what else can you do? <laughs> There's quite a lot of things. Now, I have also have a YouTube channel. If you want to help, and you want to help a way which isn't uh, connected to money because you don't feel comfortable with that, brilliant. What are you going to do right now? You're going to go to youtube.com and you're going to search for Scout Israel and you're going to hit like, share and subscribe on one of the videos. Uh, also, whatever you're listening to this on, leave me a good review. Uh, subscribe, like, share, subscribe, share it with friends, sharing is, ca is caring. And thank you very much for listening to the history of Judaism, the history and story of the Jews. You've been a wonderful audience. <laughs>